Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where our guests pick stories which they think are significant but somewhat underreported in the media. This week I am delighted to be joined by two guests. We have Will Tanner, director of the think tank Onwards and a former advisor to Theresa May. And we have Torsten Bell, director of the Resolution Foundation and former advisor to Ed Miliband. So, Will, welcome. And we're going to go straight to your underreported story. Thanks, Aisha. So my underreported story is uh, the loneliness strategy that the government published on Monday. Um, And I chose this specifically because I think loneliness is one of those issues that we don't really talk about very much. It didn't get very much coverage. Um, But uh, if you look at the statistics, over uh, uh, two-fifths of over 65s um, say that their main form of company is television. Uh, And uh, we know that loneliness has as as worse kind of health effects as uh, long-term smoking, 15 cigarettes a day, uh, or uh, obesity. So we need to be talking much more about uh, loneliness as an issue. And I thought the fact that the government came out with some sensible suggestions to tackle it was uh, worthy of reporting. I think it's a fascinating story. There is an obvious Theresa May gag that I'm go- that I'm not going to do. I'm just going to leave that hanging in the ether. But it is um, fascinating because the issue of um, loneliness and, of course, its impact on mental health is a, is a huge issue. And obviously for older people, but also there's an argument that in this very social media-driven world, people are suffering from this juxtaposition of feeling like they're super connected online, but actually having crippling loneliness in real life. I think that's right. And I think we do need to think quite carefully about the relationship we have to technology and, and how much we're actually interacting with real people in our in our real lives. The UK actually has a really big problem when it comes to loneliness. So 22% of UK adults are lonely uh, or socially isolated compared to something like 13% in Japan. Um, so double what, or nearly double what some other countries uh, have in terms of social isolation. And, and we'll just, just for base things, how is loneliness defined? So it's people reporting whether or not they are um, lonely or socially isolated most or all of the time. Um, so it's uh, it's a self-reported measure, um, but it uh, uh, it kind of captures whether or not people feel like they're in other people's company a lot. And so th- th- the feedback is that lots of people are, are going for a whole day or even more than that without any interaction, not seeing anybody, not talking to anybody. Yes, absolutely. So, so 3.8 million people, according to the British Red, Red Cross, in their in their uh, kind of old age, people over the age of 65, say that they that TV is their main form of company. And of course, we also had a report out or reports that the BBC might be looking to cut that licence fee for older people, which, I mean, of course, we're going to, you know, there is obviously the, the, the cuts issue, but it, as you say, TV is often a lifeline for, for older people. So that's absolutely right. And obviously that's now a decision for the BBC rather than for the Treasury, a decision that George Osborne made a few years ago. Um, uh, and I think, uh, bluntly, that's going to be a very difficult decision for the BBC to take if it, if it has to do that. Um, the one thing I would say is that over the last 20 years, we've seen older people um, significantly improve their um, their kind of net worth, their, their kind of wealth, and the older generations tend to be much uh, much uh, wealthier than than they were 20 years ago. Pensioner poverty has declined a lot, so um, there might be a case for older people taking more of a more of a burden. Actually, it's younger generations, as Torsten's work has shown, uh, who are um, who are um, uh, kind of being uh, left out of today's economy to some extent. And well, what do you think the solutions are? I mean, it slightly troubles me that we just. And, and we all say, you know, 
television as a lifeline for, for older people. We just don't want our older people just sat at home, just staring at television all day, which is actually what I spend quite a lot of my time doing, to be honest. But how do you, what can the government do? What can the state do? What can individuals do? What should we be doing as individuals? What are the strategies that will actually change things? Well, I think there are there are lots of things we can do. Some of the things the government talked about were um, social prescribing, which is getting GPs to um, prescribe social activities, dancing, art classes to people who are isolated. I actually think that's an entirely good thing. It's not the type of thing that goes down well with the Daily Mail, but it um, but it I think genuinely does have a big. And you effect. also need the money there to provide those services. Indeed, and the government put in some of that money. But actually, there are there are also amazing charities doing work in this space. So um, the Cares Family is one amazing charity set up by uh, Alex. Smith. Yep. which um, uh, connects young people and older people um, uh, to have a cup of tea, to sit down, play a board game, uh, talk about their lives. And it creates that kind of generational connection which we've lost in recent years. And I think that that type of work is super important. Torsten, what's your um, thoughts on, on this story? Well, I think one thing to think about is, so we often we think about old people when we talk about loneliness, but if we actually look at the loneliness data, there's, there's how often do we bump into and interact with other people? If we just ask people, were you lonely today? Actually, young people are incredibly like young, yeah. like people who are 18, 19, 20 are incredibly likely to say they felt lonely today, even though they had social interactions. In fact, they're more likely than old people who aren't having those social interactions to say that. So I think there's something more complicated about what it means to feel lonely, what what genuine connections are. Um, and, and I think it's very good that the government is... Um, you know, loneliness is probably going to be one of those things that goes from being seen as totally irrelevant to politics five years ago to being in 15 years time, a kind of core purpose of it about how do we address a new challenge facing our country. Joe Cox talked about this yeah. a lot, obviously, and I noticed the government praised some of her work when they're doing it today. But what is the truth? We don't really know what the policy answers are to solve this. We know like very heavy use of social media is bad. But what the effects of smaller uses? People that use it a lot have low well-being. So, like, stop it if you're doing that at home. But the um, but people that just use it but still come uh, on the unheard website. Obviously. Go on the unheard website as often as possible uh, within healthy limits. Um, but people that are just using it a bit, we don't really know what the long-term effects are on other things, and we don't know how we don't know how to encourage social interactions. If we're really honest to ourselves. I think that's the thing. I mean, there's the social media aspect, which I think we we are going to look back on this era, um, probably the same way that we look back at the tobacco industry. You know, in in the sort of mid without the mid glamour. century, without the, the glam and the fun bit. But you know, because I think it, it will will is doing a huge amount of damage to us. But I think you make a very valid point about what are our social connections now. What, how many of us really have proper friendships now? You know, in terms of oh, the Jesus, lifestyles that we depressing. lead. But, but, but it's true. I mean, there was some work done recently where people said, um, you know, how many really, really good friends would you say you have? But in a time where people are increasingly, I mean, you've done amazing work about how the squeeze on people's living standards, people having to sort of sometimes work two jobs, you know, hugely difficult logistics with their life. Often their family is not nearby them anymore. People are moving um, a lot, migrating obviously from other countries, but also within the UK. I know many of my friends' new mums feel very socially isolated as well. Um, if, you, if you're if you not working, if you've got mental health issues, if you're off from sickness, it, it is a very, very difficult um, problem to, to solve. Um, and do you think that the government can set itself any meaningful targets in this area, Will? I think so. I think government targets in general are usually um, 
uh, not necessarily a good idea. But I think the government um, should see itself as as kickstarting a, a national conversation about this and um, trying to enlist the support of every organisation in society, whether that's companies, whether that's uh, um, kind of community groups, charities, uh, schools, hospitals. We, we all have a role to play. And actually, as Torsten says, I think what we're really seeing is basically the exposure of an issue that has been hidden for a long period of time or we just haven't spoken about for a long period of time. I mean, quite a lot of it, I suppose, as well, goes to, um, you know, people's quality of life issues. But also it does strike me that, you know, it could it's an important part of our, our other government objectives, better social cohesion, better integration. Health, it's very important to long-term yes. health. I mean, you, one of the other things, is, I mean, we've been talking a bit to Sainsbury's who were involved in, I think, the strategy the government launched this week and are having, you know, Sainsbury's, huge stores all over the country, less people going into those stores because we're, some are shopping online, but not everywhere. But lots of people stu- still do want to go into stores. And lots of people obviously want to talk as much as they want to shop. In fact, personally, I'd rather talk and not shop given the straight option. Uh, but, they, um, but they're using a lot of their cafes and setting aside a table where people who want to talk that table is there for them to sit down at and do it you know and good on them for trying something and let's see if it works do you think mps should have more of a role in their local constituencies to sort of bring people together i think we should be worrying about loneliness of mps i'm not sure they should be solving it i think we should seriously be paying more attention to the mental health and stability of some of our mps in the current plan absolutely but in terms of um you know their you know obviously they have their constituency surgeries which bring people together could they be doing more events to try and sort of encourage people to come together, even if it's just a shout at the MP? So when I speak to MPs, um, actually, the best MPs are already doing quite a lot on loneliness. So Neil O'Brien is one of my board members. He does loads of events in his constituencies. He's one of the co-chairs of the Joe Cox Foundation, actually, now, um, and leading lots of that work. But he he tries to drive the conversation around loneliness and to bring together organisations that can, that can help people. Is this, though, the inexorable just sort of evolution of society and as we become more technically and digitally dependent is this just not you know the way things are going to go because as you say we just do everything online and we shop online we have conversations online we sort of fight with people online we do everything online now we should just stop it Aisha but how just can we stop fighting online just put stop. the phone down <laughs> we can't <It's> stop <laughs> our online is, existence it turns out that is a bit of a problem yeah, maybe anyway, the, um, maybe we should start giving ourselves like you know the new form of antisocial behaviour order is a get off your phone a digital sit, asbo yeah, so digital, what we need is digital asbo you definitely need digital asbo <laughs> how very Will's very you. well behaved he does not need a digital how asbo how very do you I'm going to not <laughs> say it to your face I'm going to troll you on Twitter later for that excellent so to look forward to uh there, the, well, is it inevitable? I, mean, I don't know. Well, I would say one, there's definitely big divergences between countries. There's definitely not inevitable the level of loneliness. Um, there's definitely different societies deal with it differently. Is there, does there appear to be a, a trend across countries? Yes. Do we know exactly how to deal with that? No. And so should politicians that want to make themselves relevant, not just a kind of the minutiae of each bit of Brexit week by week at the moment, not that anyone's really got an answer, but instead to the questions Britain will be answering in the 2020s, they should definitely be thinking about this right now. Excellent. Well, Will, thank you very much for that story. Really, really important issue and something that we should all um, do our bit on. Um, Torsten, you have a fascinating underreported story, which shouldn't be an underreported story, but it is. 
So, I've got some news for you. Tell me. In 10 days, we are having the budget. What is this budget you well, talk of? Well, budget, it turns out, is normally where the Chancellor comes along and says, I don't worry, I have got an economic plan for the country. The, um, and it's normally where they come along and say, um, look, here's my cunning wheezes on tax or on spending or on kind of encouraging investment, and it's going to sort out all our problems. And everybody claps and goes away, thinking that is good, the country's got a plan. Now, the problem is that this budget is 10 days away, and it's normally on the front page of every paper, uh, front, you know, on the BBC News every night, what's going to happen? Is it going to be a good one? Is it going to be a bad one? How, what's going to happen to the forecast? And basically, because everyone is in kind of Brexit mania, no one's discussing anything. Now, that might be okay. Um, and in terms sometimes over the last decade and a bit, I've thought to myself, uh, maybe a good idea we all stop talking about economics for a bit and focus on something else. But um, at the, we are, if we're honest, also in a situation where, you know, earnings have picked up a bit in the latest data, but we're still earning less than we were before the financial crisis. We've got low investment in this country, including amongst our advanced firms. We have low productivity growth. So it's not absolutely clear we have cracked this economic thing. And so maybe it would be a good idea if we were all... Um, discussing the budget just a bit. And it is fascinating how the sort of primacy of the Treasury has completely diminished over the last couple of years. I mean, we've all been advisors, either in government or in opposition, and pretty much the Treasury was seen as the most important government department, even above number 10, because you always chase the money and it's the economy stupid. Yet this fascinating shift has happened where, you know, the Chancellor is now not really the top person. Everyone is not hanging on um, his every word. And you're absolutely right. You know, we were absolutely obsessed about all of this stuff, but the political shift because of Brexit has just sucked that away. I mean, Torsten, what do you think will... Will we ever move back to the way things were or are we just going to be trapped in this Brexistential crisis forever now? Well, we're definitely going to be in this Brexit central crisis forever. So let's just assume that and park it and move on to like what's really going on. Why does it feel like the Treasury is maybe less important than it once was? Well, one, the institution has had a kind of, you know, a big financial crisis followed by Brexit. These Neither of these things was like on the Treasury's to-do list. They, and that has had a big effect on their confidence levels. And Philip Hammond is a different kind of chancellor. George Osborne was, you know, a, the government's primary political strategist, one of their main spokespeople. Philip Hammond is not. Philip Hammond is a guy. And of course, to, Gordon Brown was such a huge, and Gordon huge Brown figure. Obviously, what, thought he was the prime minister yes. even before he was, and then was the prime minister. The, and so, you know, it's just a different game. And but in some ways, let's not feel too sorry for Philip Hammond. I mean, it's a good gig being the chancellor. The budget is a huge opportunity. Everyone pays attention in a way, by the way, they don't in other countries. Lots of countries have these budgets much lower key. Everyone pays attention when it does happen. They do have more control than lots of other politicians have. There's lots of levers, tax policy, spending policy. They've got a lot of very clever civil servants around to help them. The problem is that this budget, the Chancellor, is fairly heavily hemmed in by both economic constraints and political ones. On the economic side, Brexit makes things much, much more uncertain, even than we have been over the last 10 years, when you will have all remembered they've been pretty uncertain and it's against the backdrop of political pressure you'll remember that Theresa May at her conference the biggest thing she probably said apart from the you know dancing is the biggest thing she did that was the biggest thing it was obviously that was the biggest moment but the biggest thing she said was that we were approaching the end of austerity now the background to that is obviously 
lots of the country and all of politics actually from the left to the right is quite tired of austerity but the um, but we are still going with it we are heading into the 2020s when demographic pressures start to build putting pressure on new ways of either raising money or cutting spending further and you know it's not a government with a big majority I mean, well, I mean, I have to say, I don't think it's more that anybody has a huge amount of sympathy for for Philip Hammond. I think it's just that there's so much economic uncertainty. I think businesses really want the Chancellor to be quite a, a kind of a strong figure right now. What, what's your take, having been on the inside with Theresa May? What's your take of the, the politics of where the, the Treasury is right now? Well, I think Philip Hammond and the Treasury will be quite happy about the lack of commentary on the budget. I mean, two weeks out from a budget and there being very little kind of criticism or or leaks or uh, kind of that incessant gossiping that goes on before budgets um, uh, will, will please number 10 and 11 because it will mean that they'll have more opportunity for surprise and uh, a greater opportunity to own the narrative when it actually comes to the budget. Um, I would also just say that um, it's not necessarily a bad thing that the Treasury is a more diminished institution over the last couple of years. I mean, if you if you um, think Tolton back to the kind of... shaking his head. Let Will finish his point. <laughs> <laughs> if you, I mean, if you think about some of the big events that we've had in British politics over the last few years, and, and I include Brexit within that, um, a lot of that has been... Um, a reaction or a retaliation against uh, what you might call kind of treasury thinking over the last 15, 20 years. Um, and uh, and uh, I mean, I think it's very notable that, for example, Labour are calling for revisions to the Treasury Green Book, the Bible on how to invest uh, around the country. Um, uh, and there, there is there is definitely a bit of a, um, uh, a kind of response to um, uh, the kind of treasury's methodology and its way of working, um, which basically suggests the Treasury didn't necessarily get it right all the time over the last 10, 15 years. Some of the problems that exist in our society might be as a result of Treasury decision-making. Um, and therefore, um, what we're seeing is perhaps a little bit of a correction on that. That's ah. not necessarily a bad thing. Well, that, that is interesting. I think there's a lot of people that would agree that the, the Treasury's thinking, particularly since uh, 2010, depending on which side of the, the, the political divide you're on, has uh, contributed to the problems. But what do you think the Treasury's game plan is for this budget, Will? What do you think we're going to going to see, particularly uh, with universal credit? I think the Treasury needs to do two things with this budget. It needs to deliver uh, a degree of macroeconomic certainty for business and uh, and basically give confidence to businesses and actually bluntly to public spending departments that, uh, that the government has a plan that um, uh, encompasses all scenarios what happens on March the 29th next year um, and that it is willing to take big bold decisions after March the 29th if we do have a, a difficult scenario uh, through the Brexit negotiations and that's that's I mean this is the last opportunity for the, for the Chancellor to do that before Brexit he needs to do something on that front um, but, but he also needs to do some things to a uh, kind of uh, respond to the criticism and some of the kind of brand challenges that the Conservative Party has had in recent years universal credit is a big mm -hmm. part of that personally I would like to see him um, putting more money into universal credit and, and doing some things around transitional controls to move people onto universal credit so they don't lose out. Things like the work allowances. Exactly and... right. Exactly right. Because I do think um, when universal credit was first talked about, it was seen as a way to make millions of people better off. It was a way of making sure that uh, we didn't have this welfare trap of uh, people losing yeah. nine, uh, uh, 90p in every pound of, uh, uh, of earnings when they went into work from, from benefits um, and making sure they always benefit from working. Um, and I think that, that's, a, that's a very good principle, but we need to make sure that's the reality. And Torsten, what do you want, if you were advising um, Mr Hammond, Phil, for spreadsheet Phil, what would you be saying to him? Well, on the specifics of universal credit, yes, you need to put more money in. You can't be delivering a huge benefit reform of this scale affecting 7 million people 
amongst our poorest households and more of the most vulnerable in some cases, 700,000 disabled people being managed and migrated across to universal credit over the course of the next two years. So you need to put some more money into that. The, um, that was That's kind of inevitable. I'm not sure we will see that uh, at this budget, but you know you will need to. Otherwise, this is going to be a running problem for the government for the years ahead. But the bigger picture he's really got to decide is, is he going into this budget saying, when Theresa May told you we'd ended austerity, mm. um, not so much, which is obviously the current plans. As things are set out, we're looking forward to years more of departmental spending cuts, yeah. 12 billion worth of welfare cuts still being rolled out. Um, or is he going into it saying, not the good times have arrived, because he can't promise that. And that would be, and he's not about to do that. But here's some of the tough decisions we can make. And if we get this Brexit situation right over the next few months and things calm down, we have more economic certainty um, that you don't need to see deteriorations in your public services in the years ahead. Those are his basic options. The, um, I, thought, I thought he was planning actually to have a very boring budget until I think the Treasury was planning a very boring budget until, until Theresa May stood up so the, and said yeah, the end of austerity. This, this is, so this is a really, really important point. How do you reconcile those two things? Because you're right, the most arresting moment of that conference speech, and actually the thing that kind of saved that conference speech was, hurrah, the death of austerity. How do you then, from a comms point of view, pivot that to a, actually, we're just, it's not quite the death of austerity, it's just a kind of managed decline for, for quite a long time still to come. Aren't they going to have a huge comms nightmare with this? So, so purely on the disgracefully shallow comms approach you're looking at it, then yes, they're going to have a very tough time. Except comms does become a political problem. Apparently that matters quite a lot. And then, look, so it's completely impossible that Jeremy Corbyn is not going to stand up as soon as Philip Hammond sits down and say to him, the Chancellor's just spoken for whatever he's spoken for, 40 minutes. Um, and the one thing that's clear after that is that when Theresa May said austerity was over, what she meant was five more years of yeah. austerity. Like, that's definitely what the Labour Party is going to say. The, um, and they're going to say that even if he makes some tweaks here and there, because there will be some elements of austerity uh, continuing afterwards. But the bigger picture is, because the country is not, you know, people are tired of tough times, but they also get that some of this is substantive based on underlying reasons. And so I think the question is really, can they move out of an era of, you know, George Osborne's era where that is a kind of like, what is the Conservative Party about delivering austerity and not a lot else uh, to an era which is we've got something else to offer. We are not saying to you it's all going to be easy, but we're saying to you there are different objectives we're about tackling. Loneliness is a good example, but, you know, better public services, um, you know, a, a universal credit system with enough money in it to actually support people's living standards. And that is going to require some other tough decisions. And in, in the end, what's the big picture of where we are at the moment as we head into the 2020s and ageing society, which is we're moving from an era where tax cuts were a possibility both the conservative government in pre-1997 and the labor government cut lot talked about cutting taxes in lots of areas even when putting them up in others that era is gone the yeah. era of people running into elections with manifestos promising big tax cuts is over unless you want to argue for much much smaller state which some but not most is my view but conservatives absolutely. want to argue and i think for. even i, I think the grind is shifting and on that, that is the big picture the political divide yeah hello well, tax rises here we are well put, uh, put that on a mug um yeah. or a bus or something like that or something a 350 million pounds worth exactly. of tax rises a week coming your way um well look thanks very much for that torsten no doubt um, it will. I'm, I'm sure you'll be absolutely correct on your analysis, particularly, um, and if Jeremy Corbyn was listening, you can credit Torsten Bell with your opening line. Um, right, we're now, going, the post. we're now going to move on to heroes and villains. Will, uh, your hero of the week, a very, very tragic story. 
Yes, this is a, a very troubling story. Um, and it's worth saying that not all the details are, are known. So I'll just be quite careful in what I say. And um, uh, we need to make sure that um, we are aware that we don't know everything yet. But uh, my hero of the week is Andrew Norfolk, who's a journalist for the uh, Times newspaper, who wrote a, wrote a completely um, fascinating, but also kind of very depressing and tragic story this week about uh, a woman with learning disabilities, um, an IQ of just 52. Um, she had autism and she uh, was in a care home and um, part of her care plan um, uh, allowed uh, men to uh, come into the care home between 10 and 4 during the day um, and have what was uh, termed risky sexual encounters with her um, uh, for the purposes of, quotes, um, her learning difficult lessons. Um, this wasn't just uh, put forward by the care home, uh, as reported in the story. It was also sanctioned by the Court of Appeal. Um, and this has only just come out. This is going on last year, um, uh, just outside Manchester. And uh, it's um, uh, kind of asked some serious questions about how we treat people with um, severe learning disabilities, um, how we uh, hold uh, the authorities and the care homes accountable, um, and also... Um, to some extent, also the secrecy of the court system. I mean, the, the court system is meant to be there as a uh, as a as a check and balance, as a source of accountability for the system. And it, it seems to be um, that this case has remained hidden for quite some time. It has only come out through kind of dogged investigative mm. reporting that Andrew Norfolk has made his name doing. Um, so I wanted to just highlight it and and praise Andrew as a hero of the week. Well, I mean, at a time when uh, it's very easy to slate journalists, um, then absolutely full full credit to him. But this story is just sickening, completely sickening. I mean, I cannot count that in this country, in this day and age. I mean, if you had told me that story from Victorian times, I still would have been like, that's a horrific story. The idea that we hear and now that this has been sanctioned at a state level, I mean, it, it absolutely beggars belief. And serious, I mean, I hope a, a fulsome investigation is done into this because it's just absolutely horrific. Um, I'm going to move on because I'm conscious of time. My, my hero of the week, um, sadly passed away but attend, I attended the memorial yesterday of Tessa Jowell mm. and it was an incredible memorial service but I think the thing that struck me the most in terms of the political takeaway was that there were people there honouring her from, from all sides of the political spectrum and we live in such an era of tribal politics and very very ideologically driven politics but she was a politician who actually got a huge amount done through consensus um, and it does feel that we could do with a few more Tessas right now um, but Torsten you were also there yesterday. We could definitely do with some more uh, Tessas and wherever you are on the politics of it all one of the things you remember the thing about Tessa is there's, there's a, we should all take away one that change can happen if you are and that you don't you know often at the moment again wherever you are on Brexit wherever you are on the political spectrum politics feels just grim at the moment, it feels slightly dark. It feels like the possibility of delivering the kind of change you want, the kind of Brexit you want, the kind of Britain you want is difficult. And even when things were difficult, one of the things about Tessa is she was just so energetic and mm. so committed. I mean, to, to like a staggering degree. The, um, so the huge amount of energy and the huge amount of view that change is possible, I think we should always yeah. cling to. But we should also cling to, I mean, a lot of people, the thing, the word that was used most at the service yesterday was love. Yeah. Over and over again, and every speaker from a Brixton a community in Brixton to um, politicians to friends and family, and that is something that is too often not talked about in Absolutely. politics today. And, and that is, in fact, her, her husband said that her final words were "were love together," um, and also 
I think sometimes there's a, there's a bit of a thing in politics now that you can't ever achieve anything unless you're sort of demonically tribal and brutal on one side or the other. She achieved so much for this country. The Olympics, um, sure start, a huge number of brilliant policies. So you can achieve a lot through consensus and not being horrible to people as well. OK, Will, going to come back to you for your villain of the week. So my villain of the week is um, Angela Rayner for her um, very ideological opposition to free schools. And she, I've chosen her just because data came out this week showing that free schools are the best type of school in the country by progress measures. Um, and they uh, they deliver actually really significant, significantly better results than any other type of school. They're four out of the top 10 schools in the country. Um, so uh, Labour and Angela Rayner's uh, position on free schools in particular uh, seems to fly completely in the face of evidence. So wherever you are in the ideological spectrum, um, it just it feels like a, uh, a very ideological position for Labour to take. Torsten, your response to that? Well, look, the free school debate is being caught up. When people hear free schools, they hear Michael Gove in large part, and, and he, that causes some divisions in life. So that is what lies behind a lot of this. And they also my hear academies is, as well. Right, so they, they, they hear academies. And my actual view is that if we look back at education policy over the last... Um, probably 15 actually years, too much of our debate is about the structures of schools, whose accountability, how does the local authority fit in, which which academy chain, all this stuff, and not enough on the quality of teaching. And actually, the, that is where the most important differences are. And everyone will know from you know their own school or the schools their kids are in that what matters is the quality of the head teacher and the quality of the teaching. And that is the most important thing. And that should be what is the frontier of um, education policy today. Um, I don't really agree either with Michael Gove or with some parts of the Labour Party that think that the most important thing is the exact structure of who owns or runs a particular school. You know, personally, uh, there's too there's not enough free schools yet to know, and it hasn't been long enough to know the exact long term outcomes. Yes, the results this week are above average and are good. The, um, but let's wait and see. There aren't there just aren't yeah. enough of these schools to know in the long term. But my basic view is let's focus on teachers, let's focus on teacher quality and that is how we'll drive up results. And also let's focus on teacher morale because we have a, a real crisis with teachers leaving at an alarming rate and whatever the structure of your school is, if you haven't got teachers to teach, you've got a problem. Um, right, final uh, villain, uh, Anjem Chowdhury, who is this week released from prison. Um, he is a hate preacher who has um, been supportive of Daesh and spread some horrific things. He's he's coming out of prison this week. He is banned from leaving London, but so he's obviously our villain of the week. But what my anxiety is, is that he's been in prison. Um, he's obviously not been on our mainstream media, but online has a huge, huge following He's bound to stimulate some level of activity again on that part of the extremist, Islamist um, kind of spectrum. The counterforce on the far right extremist level, the Tommy Robinson activity. I just have this anxiety that with his release, I hope I'm very, very wrong, but there could be, you know, an inflammation of these very two horrendous parts of the extremist um, spectrum. But I'm not sure what can be can be done. Um, Will, what's your what's your take on this? Well, I was in the Home Office for um, a number of years while Andrew Chowdhury was uh, kind of on the outside while he was um, uh, hate preaching on our streets and uh, and organising uh, against uh, kind of Britain, uh, ultimately. He's, he's actually um, unbelievably dangerous, not just because of his views, but because he's an, a fantastic publicist for them. Yeah. He, he runs WhatsApp groups with hundreds of journalists across Europe to promote his stories um, and to ensure that he is part of uh, a kind of narrative 
of of and he is very fluent and intelligent and he is and and he's a, he's an um a dangerously convincing uh um a kind of orator and uh preaches preaches a very um uh, kind of a difficult form of uh, form of hate speech. So, um, so it's very difficult. He's on a very restrictive regime. It's worth saying. Um, uh, it, it would be very difficult for him to uh, do very much on the outside. But we need to be incredibly wary, and we need to um, do everything in our power, I think, to try and um, challenge and uh, respond to these types of these views and respond with uh, a positive message rather than responding with the the very aggressive re- message that we see on the kind of far right extremist uh, front, um, which ultimately also is a really big problem in our society making up about a quarter of all extremist uh, hate, hate crime incidents so um, so it's not just Islamist extremism it's also the far right as well Torsten any thoughts? No obviously I agree with that I think you know we can all safely agree he goes in the villain category the, um, on on him specifically I mean he's, uh, my understanding is he's actually banned from using the internet except in very constrained circumstances so the um, I don't know whether that extends to WhatsApp or not you live in hope the, um, but the but I think it's more that it illustrates the general point. And in lots of ways, actually, over the last decade, we have come to, as a society, you know, we've learned to engage with Islamic extremism because it, because it's been with us for the last 17, 18, 19 years. Yeah, it's been around for a They're, long time. It's been a long time before that, but like on, yeah. the, on the news and our papers, the thing that we are the, right now as a society, not we have less of a handle on how to deal with is the far-right extremism that has been around. It's not. Let's not pretend that it wasn't there before, but it is there in a a more public and a more visible form with spokespeople who have not actually been to jail recently the, um, uh, and that journalists find it harder to know how to engage with because just like they did with Islamic extremism 15 years ago, they want to report things that are happening in our society, but they don't want to provide a platform to people preaching hate. And that is a hard balance to make. Well, that is make. the hard balance to make. And in fact, the, the BBC and others came under justified criticism for giving Anjum Chowdhury a huge platform um, many, many years ago which then sort of led to more activity and him obviously being arrested the BBC is now um, under fire for giving you know Tommy Robinson a platform I mean it's very difficult to get that balance right where will where do you think the sort of media responsibility lies to report trends but then not give people these massive massive platforms so I I will always come down on the on the side of free speech, but I do think there is a there is something about proportionality here. So lots of media organisations give massively disproportionate uh, coverage and and kind of a platform to to certain figures because they are iconoclastic or uh, or kind of representing a kind of very extreme viewpoint in order to quote promote debate. Um, and I actually think what all you do there is expose this 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 relatively uh, kind of minor viewpoint that is not supported by large numbers of people to a much much larger audience yeah. um, uh, out of all proportion to its actual following and I think I think media organisations just should always be very careful about inadvertently giving a platform um, to people who are who are ultimately trying to divide society rather than to make it better. I, I would completely agree with that and I think part of the the premium now for broadcasters um, TV and radio is to have a moment of normally unhinged conflict between two sort of crazy people exactly. from polarised minority extreme views to create a moment which goes viral on mm. the internet like fungus and 
that's what the sort of goal is now. And I understand the pressures on um, broadcasters to do that. But yeah, I think you're right. There has to be um, a bit of responsibility, which is what we always try to do here at Unheard. Um, thank you so much to my two guests, Will and Torsten, for coming in. Really brilliant, meaty discussion about lots of big issues there. Um, and I've been Aisha Hazarika. Please do listen to the Unheard weekly podcast again next week. Thank you.